Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Urban Nature, a new podcast from Istanbul 74. I'm Gabriel Koslovsky, a Brazilian architect and curator working on urbanization from the perspective of political ecology. In Urban Nature, I talk to prominent thinkers who have been pushing the boundaries of our understanding on the relationship between humans and the natural environment. Today, beautiful rainy day here in Boston, I'm in conversation with Verena under Matt Conley. Verena is a cultural and critical theorist who's been teaching at Harvard since 1996 in comparative literature and romance languages and literature. She writes on current dilemmas in the natural and urban environments, and her publications include, among many, Ecopolitics, the Environment in Post-Structuralist Thought, Spatial Ecologies, Urban Sites, States, and World Space in French Cultural Theory, and the edited volume Rethinking Technologies. She also has just finished Caretetics, Ecology, Technology, Worlds. Verena is an affiliate of the Harvard University Committee for the Environment and an associate of the Harvard Urban Melon Initiative. Verena, thank you so much for being here. I'm very happy to be in conversation with you today. Thank you, Gabriel. It's my pleasure to be here and to be with the Istanbul 74 podcast. So I look forward to our conversation. Fantastic, thanks. I thought about structuring this conversation around the intersection between ecology, politics, and space, which are things that I see cutting transversely through your work. But then access those themes by expanding on notions of new materialisms, feminisms, and the ways in which we relate to and perceive the environment. So perhaps we could start with the notion of new materialisms that's not only has recently recentered matter at the core of social sciences and humanities, but also opened the possibility of reconceiving the relationship between culture and nature, the boundaries between human and non-human, the meaning of subjectivity and so on. So can you talk about how you perceive this shift and the directions it's opening? Yes, uh, of course. Uh, you know that this shift, uh, if you can call it a shift, is not something that happened overnight, but a, a rather gradual uh, shift that occurred over the past two centuries, uh, I would think. And perhaps, you know, to make it very short and quick to say that, uh, as we is, has been said, often that in the 17th century uh, you have a rearticulation uh, of the relation between nature and culture uh, in such a way that um, nature becomes uh, matter but matter is inert is dead matter uh, and the subject uh, can manipulate this matter and can control it and that's something that uh, sort of opens to modernity as well, uh, but gradually people who are in science really, in, they seal this uh, belief, if you would like, and uh, think that science can control nature and of course can also control certain humans um, and uh, establish a distinction, if you'd like to go fast, to go quickly between subject and object. But you already have in the 18th century, you have a materialism that comes back and philosophers uh, kind of uh, think through, though they cannot openly discuss it, uh, but they think through the uh, what matter really is. And gradually in the 19th century, uh, people start to question the boundary more and more. Um, up to the 20th century when suddenly science that has been one of the culprits uh, in fact, but science now is also what uh, enables people, allows people to rethink that boundary and shows that the boundary is not as porous as it was assumed to be. And that we probably have to do some rethinking in terms of uh, a matter that is not as dead as it was assumed to be, but matter that is everywhere. Um, and if you take a, a book like that of um, 
Jane Bennett's Vibrant Materialism uh, that uh, sort of explores the liveliness of matter uh, and shows how humans are made of matter. But also we can go on from there and see what the implications are, what the relationship is between humans and nature, animals, plants, uh, the environment and how we situate ourselves vis-a-vis um, -vis the environment. The environment is not something that we just uh, uh, can, again, control, but that we are possibly part of. So this new materialism comes in actually through more of the sciences, but uh, then uh, it redoes the humanities and the humanities and the sciences in the 20th century uh, explore a sort of a timid, uh, way of of a new alliance of what was called the new alliance and of uh, being together again and rethinking um, the boundaries. Oh, and you mentioned this uh, shift in the distinction between subject and object, and I I saw that in ecopolitics and in spatial ecologies, you show how structuralism. Uh, of course, we're talking more recently now, specifically with uh, Levi Strauss inaugurated the possibility of decentering human subjects from its um, kind of self-imagined commanding position over the world or over other beings and to conceive of nature and culture as inseparable. And so this dislocation then opened ways to, to new theories and new modes of ecological thinking that also generated uh, social political and or the possibility of a social, political, and environmental awareness that would uh, later be expanded with, with, with uh, post-structuralism. So how do you see this, um, this process, this more recent process of decentering and of, um, of gaining awareness of, of the inseparability between subject and object? So part of it comes, as we just said, uh, out of the exploration of matter and, and you know, the um, the kind of development of new, what is called new materialisms. We could just call it materialisms, uh, mm -hmm. uh, as long as we don't think in terms of dialectical materialism, perhaps. Uh, but the um, if you go back to Levi Strauss, uh, who was quite important at the time, uh, structuralism that has been much maligned and criticized in part for good reason, uh, also horizontalized the world, if I may say, mm. and uh, a structure really showed how terms were caught in a configuration and that these were not essential terms, but these were terms caught in a historical configuration. And by changing one of the terms, uh, it would have an effect on all the other terms as well. And so this kind of more horizontal world view was really important for decentering the human or human exceptionalism, because it showed already that uh, there was no such a thing, perhaps as inclusion, exclusion, but that every term was taken into such a configuration that configuration was not that much, nonetheless changing. So people really um, reproached structuralism for being closed. It's probably not quite as closed as they assumed it was because um, you know, if you read Lévi-Strauss's uh, take on the sunset, for example, it shows how it changes over time, how time is important in space and how it's not just space. But um, when you move, it, it kind of set the tone for a different way of looking at nature culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we move through post-structuralism with the importance of time and space and um, the, all these uh, kind of vertical structures that we had for a couple of centuries tend to be questioned. Mm -hmm. And with that, you obviously have the importance of a new way of being in the world, the realization that what we thought we could do that we were especially humans in the in in the western credo uh humans could just walk against 
uh, kind of a backdrop and 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 act at their will and control everything around them. So that became very questionable and even you know to a point impossible. Mm -hmm. And also it uh, dismantles the the patriarchal modes that we're used to, right? The of dominion of nature, dominion of women and women and you know yeah. other people that, who were yeah. not Western. You know, really interesting because if you go back, uh, you would see this is really takes us away from our topic. But uh, Simone de Beauvoir had access to uh, Levi Strauss's uh, um, the um, uh, manuscript actually before it was published uh, um, of the structural anthropology and used it for her second sex, for her book in the second sex. So it was very important for her. Uh, yes, and I think one way to, uh, to question our boundaries and rethink them um, is also how we inherit our how we, we, who we, the Westerners, whatever that is in a broad context, but how we inherit Western history otherwise, because we inherit Western history, uh, you know, with the great voyages and with a kind of domination, adaptation, acclimatation, all those wonderful words that go with the development of science and the control. Uh, and now we have to rethink that and uh, see what we, what our so-called scientific beliefs actually did at the time and that the damage that they did to people, to nature, to, yeah, to the world at large. Specifically in the question of the relationship or, or, or feminisms, let's say, um, I see that in your writings, there is this close approximation between ecology and feminism, almost as if um, ecology necessarily demanded a sort of feminism or kind of a new conceptualization of uh, humans in general, but women specifically uh, in society. So can you tell us a little bit about this approximation between ecology and feminism? Because they, they don't only run parallel to each other, right? The, the, yeah. same, the same thing with post-colonialism, they, they kind of all intersect at yeah. some point. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. Uh, thank you for, for mentioning that. You know, uh, I actually came to ecology um, as eco-politics, and it's an old book, uh, and it's it was one of the first, I may say, and people now say to me, oh, you wrote that when nobody read wrote about ecology and people couldn't understand it. And yeah, and people, I remember uh, somebody uh, uh, recommending me and saying, well, what is ecology? And now, of course, everybody, everybody is there. But uh, I came to it actually uh, via feminism. And, uh, you know, I came to it very specifically through um, deconstruction and feminism. And Hélène Sixou, who was one of my authors, the authors of my youth. <laughs> and uh, she, um, she was very much influenced at the time by Heidegger. And so there's a, there are very different um, uh, feminisms. I mean, there's ecofeminism, a deep, deep, fem, deep ecology, feminist ecology. Uh, that was not the way I came to it. I came to it through Sikh Su specifically, and her big detour through um, through Heidegger and her description of uh, relation with the natural environment, or uh, natural, huh? so-called environment in some of her writings. And in particular, and this is very funny because I'm right now, I'm working on an essay on a colonial garden in Algiers, which is called, as not far from Istanbul, you know, not that far, it's closer. Than, <laughs> it's the Jardin des Duhamas in Algiers, which uh, exists today and is one of the most popular gardens in uh, Algeria. And it, it's a big botany, botanical garden in the world, uh, but uh, it's a Jardin d'Essai, it's a test garden, it's a colonial test garden. And the history is really interesting because it goes right into what we were talking about here. And it's sort of, a, as Michel Foucault would say, a microcosm of the world because he says like, the garden is the small part of the world, but it's all the world. And so I'm working on that right now. And with in some of her writings, it's a it's a very important garden in her writings and also in those of Derrida, in fact. And so that's how I came to this. 
she links it to language more and how she moves through this garden before really the imposition of names and language uh, that arrest and control and 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 push down and grid uh and uh, so uh this kind of movement through space that is not a top down but that is a a sentient uh, way of a haptic way of moving through the world uh, was that's how it got started. What about the relationship between humans and other species? Uh, I was thinking here because we were talking about the garden. I was thinking about the relationship between plants and humans. That there is this kind of a non-hierarchical way of understanding the interdependency of them, right? And I think we can nest this understanding. Uh, under what we call post-humanism. And in your work, you talk about this subsuming or this uh, absorption of the I into the collective of the ecosystem that uh, post-humanist perspective allows, right? So, um, and you mentioned that this can happen through multiple ways. I'm here thinking about um, uh, entanglements or events or... Uh, so how is this connection with other species? How is it established? You know, uh, in addition to having come to ecology in a bookish way, I have to say that I'm on the side of nature unapologetically, even today, because I think it's not fashionable to be there, but I am. And I grew up in Switzerland. And so I've always been on the side of nature very, you know, very much so. So I, I think that we look at uh, animals, for example, let's start with animals. We look at animals in a way that is markedly different from the way which we looked at even 20 years ago, uh, including our domestic animals, in fact. And uh, I think if you look back in the 19th century and uh, if, you know, if you look back at some of the, um, the uh, kind of hunting, massive hunting of animals and all that. So you see how sensibilities have changed. And uh, I should perhaps say that uh, we have gone from a more intellectual way of apprehending the world toward a more uh, sentient way of being in the world. Uh, and, you know, before the, the census, uh, were sort of looked down upon, frowned upon, uh, and especially certain senses. And so now uh, they've offered, they have been back and they've, they were there and they up to the, the Renaissance and they sort of disappeared for a while and then came back again. But now, you know, since the 19th century, they've come back in mass and we really move through the world feeling touching more than seeing because you know that sight was the kind of western sense that held objects at a distance and that allowed the subject to go toward the objects whereas now we are much more aware of what some call affect uh, and you know the circulation of affect goes with new materialism because there is matter when you, you believe when you think in terms of human being not just as intellect but uh, as being part of matter uh, pretty soon you get to the level of affect and not just as an emotion but as really some stronger uh, affect some uh, you know pre-personal asubjective type of affect and the circulation of that affect that links you to the world so that um, you, uh, first of all, become aware of the importance of animals uh, and that, you know, there is an ecosystem, that we live in ecosystems and that these ecosystems, we, we don't live alone in isolation, but symbiotically uh, with other creatures. And some of these uh, are really very important for our own survival. So uh, the, the first thing would be to go to realize the importance of animal in, in, in terms of our own endurance, in our own uh, endurance and our own being, uh, and how the disappearance of certain animals will be uh, not beneficial for humans either. It can produce changes in, in all kinds of ecosystems that be detrimental to humans. Uh, in addition to that, I think we are 
much more aware of the complexity of animals' habitats, of the way they they live, uh, of the way they uh, interact with us, with others. Uh, I think I, I recently participated in a conference on ethology uh, and you know limits of a discipline and the return of ethology in our day, uh, where it's also sort of a ethoecology, uh, ethology that had to do with observing animals. But now I think we think of it more in terms of a of a mutual uh, perception and. Uh, uh, returned from the animal. So our whole notion of ethology, I think, has also been reevaluated, reassessed, and uh, changed uh, quite a bit. But uh, your first point, you mentioned um, how reassessing the place of animals in relation to humans, it kind of allows us to um, to live in better ways, if, if I could I put it shortly, but also I imagine that there is also the component of um, animals in, in themselves, despite human or not, right? It's not just that's for the benefit of us, it's for mm -hmm. the idea that they, on, on their own, they are enough, no? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think we have a much better sense of that. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think if you, uh, I would refer you to some of Donna Haraway's writings, which are really quite uh, interesting. And, and um, uh, she talks about, uh, you know, the inevitability to, to kill somebody something, but to make something killable and to, to make it have a good life and what the, you know, the ethical implications are. Um, I, I like to speak in terms of an ethos as a manner of being in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, perhaps uh, we have been become much more aware about our own ethos and how it affects other creatures in the world, other non-human uh, creatures uh, in the world. Yes, and and you, I would like to to pick the word affects uh, uh, that you mentioned, right? But perhaps not talk affects. Uh, I think it's a way for me to lead the conversation into care. Uh, both because it's central to your work, but also because of your upcoming book, uh, Care Tactics. So, uh, but even before this book, right, um, you've shown how care is such an essential word to, to ecology. And in order to understand the word uh, and the concepts and ideas behind it, one has first to let go of this hierarchic, uh, of a sort of uh, hierarchical notion of of, uh, or a notion that appeals to charity, right? Care in relation to charity, like those of caretaking or caregiving. And then to rethink care in the lights of immanence, affect, sensation, that also in the end carries a strong political connotation. So can you tell us a bit more about care? Yeah, it's, it's funny because uh, there, there was a, a big um, Pope gave a big talk in already about five years ago. That's when my care project got started. <laughs> he talked about odd care for our common world. And, you know, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. And, but obviously, Pope that he was, it was done in sort of a humanistic way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, that was interesting. And I would really like to um, look at this care, but in a non-humanistic way, perhaps. And uh, I made actually a big detour through the world and discovered that everybody, but absolutely everybody is talking about care at the time. And so uh, I, again, took it back um, a little bit to, um, to Deleuze and Gattari's uh, philosophy and to their uh, notion of care tactics. I mean, care is not really a word that you would find in their uh, in their books very much, but there is a certain tactical and careful tactical interventions. Mm -hmm. So uh, care and tactics go together. If you want to change something, I'm not a revolutionary because revolutions always end up, I was in my youth, but I'm not at this point. And they end up badly. They end up badly because every kind of imposition of violence produces counter violence, no matter what. Uh, and so 
I, I do think that a more careful uh, tactical intervention uh, is precisely of importance. But what you mentioned as care, uh, what I wasn't, what I became aware of is that care was associated with a certain feminism in America of the 1980s. And um, really interesting returned to what care is and how women were caregivers. And there's always this kind of negative connotation to that. It's a drudgery. It's, you know, you're, uh, something that is imposed on you that you have to do. And so I was really looking for other ways of caring and the care not for the environment particularly, but of the encounter with the environment to begin with and care as, a, as an event, as an encounter, um, and also care uh, tactics, care of the event and care of the complexities of the encounter uh, and care eventually as a kind of commitment as a political, ecological, ethical commitment mm -hmm. uh, that is not something that is entirely subjective. It's not a subject that goes out there like a moralist does, but more um, uh, a way of being, a way of being. And once you start with that, you're going to get to the care of the event to the care of um, of the possible as with Isabel Stengers that's been really important for me uh, and you get to different notions of um, you know of uh, care as attention perhaps care you have to go through care as um, as a um, an art of noticing but uh, care as an art uh, and care as a way of thinking uh, and of thinking and acting. But it's also connected to ethics, right? So like uh, ethics of living in this planet. Ethics as an ethos, yes. And an ethos, you know, that can be both local and global because I think ethos not as a morality because as we know, we've already our needs and I think Nietzsche is, is very good on that. Uh, it's not as an, an imposed code, uh, but it's much more as a, a way of being and, and their ethics as a way of paying attention as, you know, relation to what surrounds you, what is your relation to what surrounds you, not just people, but animals, plants, everything, the environment, the built environment, uh, how you build. So where um, I, I, there's so much to be said about that. It, it leads us to what has been said about, uh, you know, how, how do I, as a, you call me a, a culture critic, how, what is care for me? So care for me uh, has to do with a way of living. Uh, it has to be with a way of writing. It has to be with a way of reading, with a way uh, of, of talking. Uh, but care for an architect uh, has that too. But in addition, it has a, a different implications because it's a question of building. It's a question of how you build, how you construct the, um, you know, uh, your, your buildings. Uh, and then I think you may want to... <laughs> Uh, talk with other disciplines. And this is something I really care about uh, in my teaching as well, is the opening of disciplines and to the opening up between disciplines and to look, to discuss the what you can call the ecology of another discipline as a practice. And so the ecology, you know, of my practice would be, for example, in a position of care to, to commit to that, to engage in that, but also to want to do it with a sort of a Spinozist joy, as opposed to have to do it in a kind of, you know, um, boring, dull kind of way. Just one more thing with ethics that I'm thinking, ethics then becomes a sort of way to recenter a sort of 
political engagement within ecology, right? Because in, in order to have some ethics and to care about um, the way we relate to environment, it kind of builds a sort of political responsibility towards how we react. Right, uh, absolutely. And I, I think that if you are in any kind of profession that has to do with the production of a, some kind of a subjectivity or subjectivation, whatever you want to call it, uh, I think your responsibility uh, is, is there. And it's uh, something that is important and that has to do with people who are in, uh, who teach like myself or people or even who people who are in, in the arts and music, fashion, uh, food, uh, uh, any, anything urban planning. Uh, yeah. And I see that through your work, you also propose that these uh, many reflections around possible political ecologies and, uh, or those concerns uh, or, uh, with with the political and the symbolical yeah. efficacy of ecology in intellectual matters, but also in practical ones, allows a sort of critical engagement with the world at large, right? So it's almost the only way that such dialogue can be sustained at the scale that's able to, uh, to address critical planetary matters related to extractive economic systems and their social and environmental mm -hmm. uh, outcomes. So at the same time, that we can talk about ecology in a very localized, very material sense, like mm -hmm. uh, in the beginning of our conversation, the concept allows us to politically engage with the world at large. So how do you see ecology reconciling these scales? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's uh, difficult uh, and it's very important. I find that we talk a lot in my area of uh, comparative literature, we talk a lot about global, globalism, globalization, global, global. Mm -hmm. And I think that's here and it's here to stay. It's not going to go away. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you do have an emphasis on the local, especially when you start with ecology, because you start with what's around you and how I interact, uh, for example, uh, you know, how I interact with the environment that is around me and how I want to go about interacting then on what, what, whether I want, what kind of involvements I want and who I want to talk with about this. But so the, the local, I think, is extremely important. So where, what do I buy? Where do I buy this and that? How do I interact with my neighbors? How do I prevent them from doing certain things? How do I impose certain things on them? How do I uh, I you know hurt the environment, animals, plants. Uh, but then there is also my interaction with a global situation because my behavior is going to inter, you know affect people uh, at a great distance, and I may not even be aware of that. Uh, and I may do it without thinking. Um, so I I do. Um, uh, strongly believe that it's, it uh, is important to enter into conversation with others uh, for that matter and to listen to them. And I think it's important to kind of ask yourself how, how you really, what you are doing, what you're busy doing. And, you know, the way we talk and what we're busy doing is very often, those are two things. And I think it's amazing to me to see how what Bruno Latour calls the affects of capitalism really condition us and how we're so conditioned by them that at times we don't even realize and we don't, do we really want to let go or do we really want to change? I think change comes gradually. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, you can feel definitely that there is change uh, in the air, that people are more aware of it, but it comes slowly, comes very slowly. And uh, as for me, I'm, I've become much more aware politically in terms of my local situation. And I'll start with that. But mm -hmm. I also uh, have to really be aware of how my, uh, my way of acting, consuming, uh, living will have repercussions uh, on the elsewhere. And, uh, and I think it's good to be in touch with that elsewhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, uh, what I, I would caution against sometimes is the kind of um, 
activist intervention in a, in a situation where you have absolutely no knowledge and you may not even know what you're doing. You have may have a good idea, but you may, you know, your intentions might be good, but you have no idea what you're doing. And so I think it's a, it's a question of really um, link this like foreign policy, right? They, they come in and they bulldoze uh, over something without knowing, uh, without having any understanding. And so I think that's really uh, important uh, to, uh, to be in contact if you can, which in many situations you can uh, with others far away and see how you actually impact them. Mm -hmm. I see that there is a tendency to naturalize uh, systems such as flexible capitalism or neoliberalism, right? We tend to see, we tend to think of these structures as uh, indivisible and inevitable. Um, but with a lot of discussions uh, coming from uh, the realm of ecology, you see that there is a sort of responsibility of developing ecology in a way to, to kind of prevent that its relation to the world end up being replicated or replicating this something this something that's static uh, this kind of system that's static uh, managerial or in the end end up obstructing a sort of environmental consciousness okay since yeah. we talk about affect i think you have to talk about almost an infection and mm -hmm. i really don't want to use that word right now because we've had enough of those but it really is something that has to be contagious mm -hmm. and so a change it has to be a change in sensibility and a change in affect and that sort of comes gradually and sometimes you know, you, uh, you, you can see around yourself and especially uh, people are much more open to doing it when it's a question of people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what the sensibility around racism, for example, that didn't exist or around certain um, parts of the population that, you know, were marginalized and then suddenly uh, we cannot re understand why they were marginalized because our sensibilities have changed. So they are changing with the environment, but only slowly. For example, around us, uh, if you look, let's look at um, at consumption. Let's look at fashion, for example. And you know, fashion uh, people are uh, young people are not buying certain products because they want to know whether they made in sweatshops or not, and they boycott. Uh, so the people will say, "Oh, well, you know, my labor practices, fair labor practices, all that is now readily uh, accepted, and this is there." So if you have uh, what is reusable, and they already tried to come up with that circular economy, and yeah, you know, with with products that are not animal products, with plant products. So um, not everybody would be happy about that, but uh, because plants too may, you know, not be the answer to everything. Uh, but you have that sensibility. But they, it's it's interesting how the ecological sensibility always comes last. Uh, it is much more for people and then also much more for animals even. But then when you get to, to trees, plants, uh, less so. There is a growing feeling. We have to interact with the, uh, with the natural world uh, beyond animals in a, in a different way. It comes very slowly, but I think it's, it's something that cannot be imposed. Education helps, perhaps. Interestingly, in my colonial garden, and here I jump back, uh, the colonial garden that was a test garden and that had to do with acclimatation, which is a horrible saying uh, that even, you know, zoological uh, anthropology and all that. I mean, I don't want to go into that right now. Uh, but right now uh, it has come back. So the garden started with the draining of the marsh. And now, of course, the new emphasis is on the humidity and how to preserve humidity. And it's also on educating the children. It's on educating the children as citizens of tomorrow and the realization that an ecological consciousness is so important for them. So what the effect is, I don't know, but it's there. And that is all, and that's in Algeria. So that's all part of a uh, kind of a shifting sensibility. 
uh, I think it's very slow because we've been so accustomed to consuming since the end of World War II. I mean, consumption has been so massive unless you're poor. And a lot of people are very, very poor. And, you know, they, they bear the ones who are probably most affected by, by the ecological disaster that is upon us. So um, how fast that will go, how complete that will be, but you never know uh, something that people frown upon and wouldn't consider 20 years later, they will make it part of their way of being. Yes. Another topic that I wanted to talk today is the word uh, habitus. Because mm. here, and, and I extracted a, a passage from Viveiros e Castro, which I think resonates very well with your views. And here's him saying, what I call body is not a synonym for distinctive uh, substance or fixed shape. It is an assemblage of, of effects or ways of being that constitute a habitus. Between the formal subjectivity of souls and the, the substantial materiality of organisms, there is intermediate plane which is occupied by the body as a bundle of effects and capabilities and which is the origin of perspectives. So many works you discuss in your book underline this importance of ecology in relation to habitus and especially habitability. And many times the concept appears alongside that of the oikos or um, economy in the sense of, of domestication. Can you explain us this concept of habitus as it runs through your work? Mm. And it's funny, I, I want to go back just a little bit about the neoliberalism that we talked about before, because I, I promised to write a, a piece on post-neoliberalism and a volume on Derlis Gattari and post-neoliberalism. So, you know, we're trying, uh, but the habitus is funny because I have to read some proofs today about a question of inhabiting. Uh, habitable is the uh, is a special issue of a journal and it's habitable. You know, I, I was so formed in my youth by Deleuze and Gattari and by their notion of ethos as habitability, really. Mm -hmm. So habitus uh, is also a word that is very big in Bourdieu, the sociologist, the French sociologist, and a lot of people like a And uh, habitus is a way of being conditioned and uh, of kind of... Uh, you know, living in this kind of conditioned environment. So in, in Deleuze, habit is something that that's all there is. There isn't, everything is habit for him. And I think that's really something that I thought about a lot and that the way we are, the way we, we live, the way we go through the world is a habit. The way we think is habit. And so how do you kind of think beyond this habit? You know, how do you deterritorialize yourself? How do you think beyond this habit is always a big question. But um, the, the habit of what uh, Vivero de Castro, and I, I like his work very much, uh, as you may remember, um, the question of assemblages is of course, something that comes out of uh, Doris Gattari, especially Gattari. And the question that uh, the this, this subject is never sort of a form subject, but always part of a, an assemblage. And what's, the, what's missing in the word assemblage in translation is the way agencement is the French. And agencement is more active. It means how things, partial components come together and fit together and how they change over time. Uh, so how we are never quite the same, in other words, and how we should also push this in order to get out of our habits and to invent other things, you know, because otherwise we, we just become, we, we stay really enclosed uh, in that. So the habitus uh, for me, if I remember well, uh, was just a, a way of, um, of going through life as a habit, uh, you know, as a, leading your life uh, your your as a as a citizen as a whatever as in in terms of habit and how to question these habits but you can take it a step further and say that living organisms are also assemblages 
And that, you know, as we know, uh, we are full of viruses and bacteria and all these things. And it's, it's always uh, the assemblage, uh, it's the way it's, it's held together is, is rather precarious. Uh, no matter what, and can change at any time. So the habitus uh, can be at the level of the living organism, or it can also be at the at the sort of uh, ethos uh, that you have and the habits that you have uh, over time. So you know, uh, having uh, perhaps it's a question of temperament, but I always like the the care of the possible, less in the sense of. The detrimental things that may happen to us, rather than of the what is possible, and of reassembling the assemblage, you know, uh, and in other words, the habitus, uh, just the creature of habit, then go beyond your habit and try to do something that will be more beneficial. I mean, you have to invent these uh, these new ways of inhabiting. Uh, which is every time to go beyond the habitus uh, in a strict sense. And these are ways that are, you mentioned, I think, non-alienated ways of living the everyday, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, just to wrap up our conversation, I have a final, I would like to, to address this final question. Yeah, before you do that, I want to say, nonetheless, you know, that comes also, I mean, what I'm saying is is great, but it also comes from you know, a certain uh, be living in a privileged back in a privileged environment, uh, because if you're not, then thing, things are very different. And uh, there are two things I would like to add before we, we you wrap up with your last question. And and one is that uh, you know people who live in an underprivileged environment, and uh, there are many, many, many of those. Uh, it's always interesting to see also how they manage and how the force that they have in order to break their habitus, if you would like. Uh, and the second part I would like to add about living in the privileged environment and about, uh, you know, this wonderful uh, shift in sensibility, uh, I, I think you can never make this into a global shift because there are always going to be dissenting parties and then other ways of doing it. And uh, so it's just a, a matter of, uh, of persevering where you are and the way you think it. And you don't know whether what you're doing is really great or not. I mean, that will, time will tell how, because many people, many uh, people thought they were doing great things. And in retrospect, it was awful. So, um, so uh, j just to give some attention to space, because you devoted an entire book to space. So there's, there will be endless to talk about, but let's see how much we can cover here. Um, you show that with the spatial turn in the end of the 60s and beginning of the 70s, space became a critical concept that started being appreciated in its full ecological implications, right? And you said it, and here I'm going to quote, contrary to the order of classical philosophy, our apprehension of space, the basis for its epistemology, precedes its ontology. If we understand space not as a given container, but as something produced, how does ecology change our understanding of space or um, what do new ecological spaces help construct? I think the, the major thing with space, uh, as I had it, uh, was the a certain opening of space for me has always been very important um, in my life. Um, and that may, may just have to do with my psychic makeup. But the opening of a space doesn't have to be extensive. It can be intensive uh, so that it can be in terms of just shifting perceptions, um, which is a way of reorganizing the space, especially if you think in terms of an assemblage. Mm -hmm. uh, the, I think the the what I had in mind there was the the fact that um, uh, the the alignment of the space is always very important uh, and that space becomes more 
space and time are really very important. But if you if you take the Euclidean, the the kind of conventional Euclidean space it, that goes back to the more uh, res the res extensa the you know extension uh, that was at the basis of the voyages and of colonialism and of of taking over of colonizing of conquering. Uh, is a red risk expensive, then the more intensive way would be uh, to have a space that doesn't pre-exist, but that is kind of reassessed and re-articulated each time uh, with, um, you know, with changes that can be in you that don't have to be great changes on the outside. Uh, so you don't have to have a whole uh, land outside of you, but you can have it. You can have a, a different type of perception that just changes everything. Even if nothing has changed, everything has been changed. There, there was great attention on space at, at the time when I, I I worked on that book, and there was a, a attention given to spatial thinking, architecture um, in particular, and you know the kind of um, uh, dialectical thinking, materialism, dialectical materialism, Marxism and space was really important. Uh, but that there is another, there are two types of spatial thinkers really, those who, who kind of think in terms of an extension and those who think more in terms of a uh, intention, <laughs> yeah. No, fantastic. Well, thank you very much. This was amazing. And I know that the questions, <laughs> they were very broad, uh, like this one that you could, uh, when, I, when I was reading your book on space, I said, well, there are so many perspectives on how to, because you call it spatial ecologies, right? So in the end, it's a full ecology of how to perceive space that uh, now we're kind of, at least from someone that's trying to, to think what uh, urbanization means nowadays and the direction it's going, uh, it's very rich when we can kind of incorporate ecological thinking through this kind of... Uh... Yeah, I have to say that uh, not to, to leave on a somber note, you, you think that things are changing and that people are thinking, and then suddenly, uh, I mean, the pandemic uh, that we didn't discuss, um, it's been discussed enough, but that is really part of an ecological thinking. That, but I, I think that, uh, you know, suddenly there is a war. Uh, suddenly, who, who would have thought that there was a war? And suddenly there's a war that has to do with space and the way we thought was totally antiquated. And it's not, you know. As a last thing, I would say that you, you really have to continue with what you think uh, benefits uh, ecological uh, ecologies in terms of humans, animals, plants, and the whole, uh, but it's an eco-ecology, you start with your local, you go to the global, universal, and, um, and yeah, and, and then we'll see. Fantastic. And I'm very looking forward to read your book on care. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much thank for you, your man. time, really. That, this has been amazing. Thank you very much.